Well, thank you, Elizabeth, for reading it so wonderfully. Thank you. Well, if you have a Bible, turn. let's keep it open there. And uh, <clears throat> it's a long passage, isn't it? Still with whole afternoon, haven't we? <laughs> let's just put you in the picture of where we're going to here. Here is Jesus, the revolutionary. He's chosen his 12 apostles, the ones he'll send out. He's got his disciples around him, what Luke calls Mathetes, we would call them students. Then now is a huge crowd have gathered and he comes down from to this plateau. And it's really a very significant time. It's really, someone said it's a bit like Daniel's, Daniel 5 when, you remember Belshazzar has his great feast and his all the golden plates that the Poloin from uh, Jerusalem a long while ago and his, his wives and his concubines. But then he sees that writing on the wall, many, many tarkal passing, which really translated means, Belshazzar, your number is up. Because he didn't know that. But Darius, the Persian king, is at his door. And in a few days, Babylon will fall. Well, it's a bit like that here. Jesus, Jesus is coming. He's speaking to the people of Israel. And it's a very significant time. It's very difficult. But he's got a great crowd because... Nobody's ever spoken like this man before, ever. I mean, there's something about him. And people have been healed, really healed. Demons have been cast out. Nobody's ever spoken like this man. We want what he's got. And they said, perhaps he is the Messiah. Perhaps he is the Lord. And uh, he had a great crowd. But Jesus knows that some just like following, you know, a famous speaker. And so he really wants to separate them out to, to get the real thing. And so he, he, he's going to address them. And um, it's very difficult, you know, when you've been brought up in the church like I have from a baby, as it were, to realize how radical it is to follow Jesus Christ. We drift in, we do our little religious ceremonies, we baptize and all the rest of it, but we don't realize how incredibly radical it is to follow Jesus. And we just pray the Spirit will, will, will make that real to us. It's a totally different lifestyle. And really, there are three points. And we did the first one was last week. Three things that you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus. The first is actually, he says, you, become, you have to become like a beggar. You know I mean, Jesus comes down, the first thing he says, Woe to you who are rich who were prosperous, who were popular, who were having a good laugh, who were doing well, you know, and doing well in society and all that. You're in real trouble, he's saying. And I'm thinking, that's what I was brought up like. That's all the things I was taught to be, you know. So, and Jesus is very radical about this. And so he says, the first sign that you're, the first sign that the Spirit has, has worked in you, because some of them are really had latched on. They'd, they'd got what he was saying. They'd sort of been vaccinated with life by this guy. This was amazing. They knew it was electric. But a lot of it can be superficial. So three things. The first thing, he says, you've got to be a beggar. Many of us have been to India, one of my favorite places. And the first time I went 40 odd years ago, you go, you come out to the airport. And very soon at the airport, there's a tap on the taxi. And the people are begging. They're begging all the time. Begging. They're begging all the time. And then you're going down wherever it is, Mumbai or Delhi, and the beggars come. 
Jesus says you have to become like the poor. Now, he's not saying you've got to give your money away, but you have to become in that position that you have nothing. Because before God, you have nothing to recommend you. Nothing. In fact, you have a lot that God would put you off. You know, you're, you're selfish, sinful. You're broken his law. So you need forgiveness. You need to mourn for your sin. You need to weep for the vileness of your sin. You have nothing. Those, those beggars, if you go down to the boosties in the big cities, the smell is incredible. That's where they live. Jesus, your good works smell like that to God. They're like, they're, what are you worth? He said, you're worth as much as those rags on that beggar. That's what Isaiah says. He says, the first sign that you're a Christian is that you realize you have nothing. Blessed. If you want to be anointed, uh, favored, blessed by God, that's the first step. Is it? You realize, I have nothing. I have nothing to recommend. That's the first sign that God is working. We did that last week. And, um, and um, Jesus says, those who hear me, um, that's how you'll respond. So anyway, the second sign is where we pick up, is that you have to be a lover. Not simply, we are a lover. And he says, look, let's look at the text. Follow the text in your Bible, he says. He says, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who ill-treat you. This is to be a distinguishing mark about my people. This is to mark you out. Now the context is in opposition. He's going to say the righteous people, the religious people, will hate you. Why? I mean, you seem nice people today. Why would anybody hate you? Because the man and woman in the world, what they treasure most is their sense of, well, I'm a quite a good person. I have a sort of some merit. Talk to my neighbors. I'm quite a good person. Look, I'm in church. And they, they value. That's what they value. You have to say to them, I'm sorry, but in God's sight, that is, it's worth nothing. It's absolutely nothing to them. It's as valuable as that beggar's rags. Really? And, and they're going to hate you. They're going to hate you because you're undermining the thing that's most precious in their life, which is their illusion of virtue. You say it counts for nothing, really. I mean, Jesus comes to his own town and he preaches one sermon. And what did they do? They passed the hat round. No. They took him to the nearest cliff and they would push him off it. They got the message that this was a radical change that this man was, was speaking about. And Jesus says, look, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. I came doing miracles and yet they've hated me and my father. They will do the same for you. We're never going to be popular in the world. We're peddling upstream against the world. Jesus says that. And, and, he, and, and it is a fact. If you're a believer, you will be ignored. You will, some of your family will not bless you. You will, may not get the job. You'll be called a bigot because of your stance on certain moral issues and a fundamentalist and a, you know, a, a religious so-and-so. That's all you are. Narrow-minded. You will not be popular, Jesus says. Just get that in your heart, he says. But you have to love the people. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. I mean, I remember a friend of mine, he, he started attending a church like this many years ago. 
And the person who owned the farm that he rented from, was, he left it to him. But when he changed churches, he crossed off his will and he, he didn't get the farm. It was left to someone else. Now I could multiply, I could give you dozens of illustrations of that same thing. But Jesus says, be aware of that. We're going against the world, it says, you know. But the point is this, you have to love them. But how, how do you overcome this, this, this hatred, this bitterness, this spite, this envy? I mean, you can love, you know, your friends, even sinners, he says. Even sinners love those who, who love them. No, love your enemies. Do good. Not just think good, but do good. To those who, who hate you, bless them. Bless them, he says. Pray. You know, there's certain days, well, every day, if there are people who are against you at work, they're the, they should be top of your list. We, Lord, bless them. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who treat you. This is ridiculous. It's counter-cultural, precisely. This is what will mark out my people. Religious, extravagant, vulnerable Crazy love. That's what it's about. Loving your enemies. Who does that? You, that's why you need to be born from above. It's supernatural. You can't do this in your own strength. You want to wring their necks. No, no. You've got to love them. You see, he says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, you turn the other. Now this isn't saying if somebody thumps you, say, I didn't hear that, didn't feel that, hit me again. He's not saying that. That is a religious act. When Paul was thrown out of the synagogue, they would, they would smack his face and say, out! Paul and the other Christians say, you turn the other side and say, smack the other side, because I will continue to love you. I will continue to pray for you. It's a religious thing. It's not just a pugilistic response. That's what he's saying. And he says, you know, that's how you have to live. Right? And um, he said, this love is incredibly vulnerable. It's inexplicable apart from the spirit. This is why the spirit is given. This is the charismatic life. Not to do cartwheels on Sunday morning in the worship, but to live this way. In your street, in your office, in your school. And if someone takes your cloak, if someone takes your outer garment, just give them your inner garment. Be naked for the gospel in that sense. You know, if they need it, give it. It's ridiculous, but it's what it's about. See, the real issue: people are not the real enemies. The wild left-wing warrior, the rightist, bigoted right-wing racist, the person whose sexuality you you think is abhorrent. They're not, that's, they're not the enemies. They're just pawns. They're just pulled by the powers of darkness. You have to love them. They're puppets. Pulled by a, a stronger power. And that's what he's saying. Even if they nail you to the cross, you have to forgive them. When they nail you to a cross, you say, Father, forgive them. If the story, when they come to the first one, when the storms bang your head like they did with Stephen, Father, don't lay this Charge against them. That's, the, that's what the New Testament is about. How do we ever get to the tame Christianity that we're in? This is, this is what it's about. He says, 
No, no. Give to anyone who asks. Now he is not saying you give to any beggar in the street. This is the context is to do with lending and borrowing. If someone wants to borrow something, let them have it, and don't don't even ask for it back. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. And do to others as you would have them do to you. What is he saying? How do I find out what's God's will? How to love people? Well, he says, Jesus says, look in your own heart. That's, what he, that's how it works. You know, if you get some, if you're a, an awkward teenager, a miserable teenager and all the rest of it, how would you like to be treated? Well, Jesus says, that's how you are to treat them. Or if you're a stranger in this weird, strange land called Britain, it is a weird place, you know. How would you like to be treated? Well, Jesus, that's how you are to treat them. Or if you're some geriatric, senile, demented old person, how would you like to be treated? Jesus, that's how you are to treat them. Just think, that's how you are to Now, I could illustrate, we could spend all morning on that. But that's how you are to do it. And he says that, you see, he says, don't, he says, do not love those who love you. What credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. You see, this this behavior is surprising. It's ridiculous. It's supernatural. This is truly charismatic. You know, you can't understand how the early church grew in the first three centuries apart from this. I was reading one of the earlier emperors, a real shocker called Julian the Apostate, in 363, and he says this. He's trying to encourage the pagan worship in in, 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 in the Roman Empire. But he says this, he says, talking, he says, he had to admit that, um, uh, that atheism, i.e. Christianity, had been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. And though their care for, and through their care for the burial of the dead, no one had to do that. And, and it's a scandal that it's not a single Jew who is a beggar. And these godless Galileans, i.e. Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render to them. Now, I could give you a whole paper on that. But that's how it grew. The love that was there. Supernatural love. Peter says... He says to the young Christians, to this end, he says, you are called, Christ suffered for us in your place, leaving an, an example. The word is tupos, from which we get the word type, typewriter, a pattern maker. And you should follow his steps. When I was a young boy, my mother had a lovely handwriting and she wrote the alphabet out in this lovely copper plate. Now she said, now lad, you write like that. Well, I didn't, but it was it. It was the pattern was set. That's how you should write beautifully. Peter says that Jesus left us a pattern that we should follow in His steps, and He says that's how you're to do it. And He says He didn't. He didn't retaliate. He made no threats. Instead, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. You see, Jesus is preaching. He's got this huge crowd. This huge crowd. And on the, on the edge, you can bet there'd be Roman soldiers just like we'd have the police, just at the edge of the crowd. 
And Jesus says, you have to love these people. Love them, the Romans. They came, they imposed their law upon us. They're godless laws. They imposed their pagan deities in our land. They installed a puppet king, Herod. Love them? My disciples are called to love them. That's what it's about. That's what you have to do. And it's this generous, unnatural, expecting nothing in return, you know. He says, then your reward will be great. Then you'll be sons of the Most High. You know, when I was a little boy, my father died when I was very young. I remember playing football a few years later. I never knew my father. But I was playing football, and uh, a friend of my dad's, who I barely knew, came and said, it's amazing. You run around and you kick just like your dad did. And I'd never seen him play football. He played professional at one stage of rugby. But it was in the genes, as it were, in the genetic. It soon stopped, don't worry. Um, but the point is, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is in us. And it's meant to work out in life. And, you, and then he says, you'll become like sons of the Most High in your character. That's why you're merciful. Why? As your Father in heaven is merciful. Be like your Father, he's saying. Right? And then he gives certain commands and we must hurry through. He says, don't judge and you'll not be judged. And that's often quoted and very rarely understood. We always say, no, you Christians shouldn't judge. He doesn't mean don't evaluate. Don't. You've got to use your brains. You teachers, you've got to evaluate all day long. You accountants, you solicitors, you people in the offices. You, if you could vote, you have to make a decision. We have to evaluate all the time. He's not saying don't make evaluations. What he's saying is don't pass judgment on people. Don't write them off. Don't write the last page in their life, as it were. Don't sentence them. And he said, if you do that, you won't be judged. No, no, we, that's not what we're called to do. That's what he's saying. You see, because we have to watch out for false teachers. He calls us, watch out for those who are teaching heresies. You know, they come to in sheep's clothing. We're called to be critically discerning. We're called to test everything. But we aren't called to condemn people, right? He says, if you like that, that's the, if you measure people, that's the way you'll be measured. But then he gives some more. Let's move quickly through this passage. Then he gives four, four dangers, he says. He says, look, just be careful who you are following, right? Just be careful who you are following. He sees the danger of these false teachers. He says, you know, you're going to have to leave this Judaism. This, these scribes and Pharisees, they're leading you astray. They've led this nation astray. It's amazing that Jesus lasted three years in public ministry, actually. But that's another story. No, no, he says, he says, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? There are plenty of pits in Israel, dried up wells and holes. And these blind men leading you. And you see, having said that, that is the most relevant, could be the most relevant thing in Britain today. Why is Britain in a state today? Don't blame Mr. Johnson and his um, party. I mean, seriously, pray for them every day. The problem why Britain is in a state today is because of the church. 
For 150 years, the church has been led by blind guides. I, people who did not believe that this was the word of God. Ministers, vicars, seminary teachers, university theology lectures who did not believe this was the word of God, who did not believe that Jesus was the son of God, who did not believe that Jesus died in our place as a substitute on the cross, who did not believe that Jesus was rose bodily from the grave, who did not believe that Jesus is the only way, the truth and life. Why is it when I go to certain parts of the country, the, whole, the hundreds, thousands of empty buildings? Why? Because blind Men led them. Why is Britain is there? When the salt goes from a nation, putrefaction sets in. When light goes from a nation, darkness comes. Jesus, they are they look lo- lovely people. These vicars, these people, these theology lectures. I've done a degree in theology, and there have been good things since the war. I'm not decrying that for a minute. But you can't understand Britain. Apart from that, Jesus is so strong about them. He says to the, you scribes and Pharisees, you, tr- you travel land and sea to make a convert and you're making twice a child of hell as yourself. Read Matthew 23. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. That's why we sang, he is the lion of Judah. Right? He has teeth. He hates untruth, my friends. You can't understand Britain apart from that. Not well, he's just a lovely man, you know. I know he's a lovely man, he's a sheep. But he's in, he's in a wolf in sheep's clothing. See, I say that because I have friends who I've walked with and loved as deep, close, intimate friends who have been led and fallen down a pit and who have nowhere now. Would that it was just theory. No. These people, as someone said, are spiritual terrorists who live in safe houses. What are our safe houses? Churches. And they spread their spiritual anthrax everywhere. And I've seen anthrax cases. You arrive and the animal's dead. You do a blood sample, sure enough it's anthrax. But it was so quiet. You know, this, this, you can't, that's why we need to pray for the church. We need to pray for Mr. Johnson and the party, you know. <laughs> they didn't invite Jesus to the Pharisees' Christmas party, I'll tell you. Or his garden party, wherever they had it. No, no. No, he's very, he's very strong about that, you know. He, he's, you brood of vipers. Not often preached on that text, but uh, because he loves the truth, my friends. And he said, because what he's saying is you will never rise above your teachers. You know, but then he's saying, "Look, whoa, whoa, just watch yourself. It seems to be judgmental. Don't look at the sawdust piece of fleck of sawdust in your sister or your brother's eye when you've got a great beam in your own eye, a great plank in your own eye. Don't start judging people. Look at yourself. Remember always, you know, you're a sinner. Apart from the grace of God, you know, you're nowhere." You're a piece of work. Now don't ever forget that our, our, our hope is built on one thing, Jesus' blood and righteousness. Right? That's what it's about. Now don't forget that. And he's saying, you know, just make sure you're producing good fruit. Check, the, check the, that you're producing good fruit. A tree can only produce 
you know, what's in its DNA in one sense. Make sure that you're born again. If you're born again, you will produce godly, righteous, loving fruit. And um, that's what he's saying. And Well, that's the second point. The third point is, so you, we're called to be beggars. We're called to be beggars. And then we're called to be lovers of people. To love people irrationally in one sense. Scandalously, wonderfully, marvelously. But the third and final thing is this. We are called to be followers of Jesus. Why do you, all these, look at the great throng, look at the great throng, they're just coming from everywhere. And they thought, God, he's great. Why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? It's a nonsense. You see, that's what he's saying. Why do you do that? Why do you do that? You know, the test that you're a believer is that you have a life of genuine obedience. That's it. Right? Not that you're here. I'm glad you made it. No. <laughs> and you, we sing the songs. No, no. The proof is that you're obedient. You see, he says, look, let me tell you a story. There are, there's two men. And they want to, to build a house. It's a great thing. It's a big thing. They're builders. They want to build a house. Now, in many ways, there's a great similarity. They both have the same desire, right? To build a house. And people come like in this gathering with their same desire. We want forgiveness. We want life. We want hope. We want peace. We want confidence. We want power to live. People all want that. So they have the same desires in many ways. And also, they're in the same place. You know, they don't live a million miles away. The two properties wouldn't be a million miles away. We're all in the same building together. I don't know whether you're born again or not. You, you alone know that. But they're in the same place. But the third thing is, they look alike. They look alike. The two buildings, yeah, they look fine. Yeah, not been on grand design, but they look all right. You know, they look fine. But Jesus, one thing is certain. For the wise man and the foolish, trouble will come. You see... The foolish man, the difference is, is in a hurry. We're going to build. We're going to build quick. Come on, come on. We're going to, let's build, right? He doesn't ask for people. He doesn't ask for consideration. He doesn't talk to other people. He doesn't think, well, perhaps this water could come down that gully if it rained. He doesn't, he doesn't see about, he doesn't think about the future. He's in a hurry. Let's get done. Let's get baptized. Let's, I'll pray the prayer. No, no. He's in a hurry. The wise man stops. Is this a good place to build? He, he, he asks for help. He's not a proud man. He asks, I need help. This is a huge thing and you're asking me to build a house. Is this a good place to build? He digs foundations. He thinks this thing could flood. If, there, if there's a cloudburst, I must dig deep. And so he digs deep. <laughs> he digs deep and lays a foundation. And sure enough, Jesus says, the wise man who built his house on rock and the foolish man who built it on sand, the same thing happens to them both. Floods come, torrents come, troubles come, problems come, relational problems, sexual problems, emotional problems, financial problems, problems with the children, problems, discouragement, 
depression, illness, all these they come to all the godly and the ungodly. Jesus still comes, and sometimes they come like a torrent. And one thing is certain at the end of time, the wrath of God will come on all people, he says. Because all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. So he says, you've got to be careful how you build. And the wise man builds. He builds his house on the rock. The rock is an Old Testament allusion to God. You see? Now what he's saying is, the characteristic of the sound of of the second builder, he takes time. He counts the cost. What will it mean to follow Jesus in High Wycombe? In my office, in my school. What will it mean? If I'm a Muslim, I could get killed actually quite easily. The Torah makes it quite the Quran makes it clear. You know, it's easy in Britain. But whatever the country, you count the cost. You you dig a foundation. This is the biggest this is these are eternal issues. Nothing is more important than this. And it's like a man who dug deep and laid a foundation. He's teachable, you see. And the rain comes down and the floods came and the torrent struck. You know, and, but the, 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 the house on the rock, it, it could not shake it. You see? Couldn't shake it. And Jesus says the destruction was complete. My friends, if you're not in Christ, when you stand before God and his judgment fall, the judgment was so awful that language couldn't describe it. Jesus said it was complete. You see, the, the test is this. And let me come to a close. The test is obedience. It's not attendance. Not attendance. It's not the gifts of the Spirit. Judas healed the sick. Judas cast out demons. Many will come to him that day and say, Lord, Lord. But he says, not ever, it says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father. But we prophesied in your name. We, we, we cast out demons in your name. We did many mighty works in your name. Jesus says, I never knew you. I never endorse you. I think that's the most frightening verse in Scripture to me. Personally, it's a, <laughs> that rattles me every day, that. Am I a believer? You see? <laughs> it's not church attendance. I've been coming for a long while. From the cot. I know. But I was baptized. My friends, baptism will not save you. I have baptized personally hundreds. And the saddest thing is, many are nowhere spiritually. Now, if you're not baptized, get baptized and be obedient. But, well, I prayed a prayer. I can show you in the Bible when I prayed the prayer. I made a commitment. Great. I'm all for that. But that won't save you. It is only the faith in Jesus Christ. How do I know your faith is genuine? The only way I know your faith is genuine is that you are obedient. That's the only way. That's the only test. James says, faith without works is useless. How do I know that when you made that commitment, you were under pressure from your mom or the youth leader, or you thought at university, that's a good idea, all my chums, I'll sign up. Or I'll be baptized, that'll get them off my back. No, I'm being cynical, but often you have lesser motives. 
All I'm saying is, they don't save you these things. You say, well, aren't we saved by faith? Yes, we are saved absolutely by faith. But the only proof that that faith is real is that it has works. Works, it's always faith alone. But faith, as Luther said, is never alone. It always has good works. Right? That's what it's about. So it's a challenge. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? You don't do. The test, my friends, is that we do what it says in the book. And if you're sleeping with somebody who is not your legitimate wife or husband, stop. Don't wait for a funny feeling. If you're not baptized, get Just do what he says. That's what it's about. You see, I, had a, I, had a, I was vaccinated yesterday for flu. Now, what is the proof? And I said, what is the test that this dear doctor wasn't giving me a shot of distilled water? She could have done, you know. Most doctors are very trustworthy. Get that on record. But how do I know that that was not distilled water? Because I reckon, having done a little bit of bacteriology and virology in the past, that in a few weeks' time, I hope, little soldiers will be pulsing around my bloodstream called antibodies that will resist the flu when it comes, should it come. That's the proof. The only proof that you're a Christian is not that you're baptized. Do it. It's not that you've signed a thing. The only proof is that faith works itself and works. You're obedient. That's what it's about. Oh, yes, this is... Do you mean that I have to obey Jesus? <laughs> you got it really wrong. If you said to a fiancé, why do you obey your, your fiancé? Because I just love him. You do everything he says. Yeah, I do. Because I just think the world of him. I think he's great. Why do you obey Jesus? Because you have to know. Because I want to. Because I love him. Because he died for me. He's alive. He's changed my life. He came from heaven for me. That's why I obey him. Right? That's the same for you, isn't it? Do you have to obey him? Yeah. Listen, I want to obey him. It's not a problem. I'm a miserable sinner. I know that. And most days I get there eventually. <laughs> but that's it, you see. I want to obey him. If you love me, if you love me, Jesus, you will keep my commandments. That's what he says. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. Pray you forgive all the ramblings of me. I pray, Lord, you'd put in our hearts a great self-examination that we'll be ruthless with ourselves, that we will examine ourselves, as Paul says, whether we be of the faith. And we pray that you'll put a passion in our lives that is stronger than ever before, that whatever it takes, we will be obedient to every word you've said to us in your word and by your spirit. Holy Spirit, will you make us serious men and women who whatever else we do in life, it was said of us, he was obedient to the Lord Jesus. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.